Hello, everyone. It's Adasha Townsend of the Feast and Fashion Podcast. I'm a longtime food and beverage journalist who's worked with some of the biggest brands in the world. With each podcast episode, I want to introduce you to fascinating people in the culinary world. Today, Amistad Ganaway joins me. She is a chef, recipe developer, and food writer with an artsy sense of style. She is also passionate about covering and cooking food from the African diaspora. Welcome to Feast and Fashion. Happy to be here. So let's talk about, you know, these beautiful paintings behind you. I want you to describe, you're really in the art. So talk about your, your sense of style a little bit. Yeah, so art for me, well, the, the stuff that's behind me, actually, just a couple little cheap prints I got, um, actually. But I have like a print of, of Picasso, uh, Matisse, I think, is behind me. And then just a couple kind of, like you said, funky prints, colorful prints. I grew up in an environment where art was encouraged, despite maybe the kind of circumstances I was brought up in. So all of the arts, music, um, you know, going to museums, things like that, especially because like, you know, if you grow up with not a lot of money, you can go to a free event at a, you know, at a museum or you could go out and ha- hear live music at a park or something like that, right? Yeah. And it's not going to cost you anything. So. I've always really, really been into art. I don't know, I'm a person who finds beauty in everything, right? I always try to find positivity in things. I always try to find, you know, I am also very about aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think maybe that kind of kind of went from, you know, just me being passionate about art. Just, you know, I never wanted to like be like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go out here and be Monet or be Matisse, you know, or be Basquiat, right? But um, I do have an appreciation for those things. I do have an appreciation for people who can put the thoughts that are in their in their mind on to paper and make uh, people feel moved by it, right? Or whatever their, whatever their canvas may be, right? Not even necessarily paper. Um, and I think that's kind of helped help me be inspired, especially going into culinary. Um, my my sense of style, honestly, I kind of just do what I want, <laughs> right? Um, and I think that, you know, obviously maybe even art has kind of played into that where I don't really feel like I need to adhere to a certain look or, you know, go by a certain trend. You know, oh, yeah. I try to I try to also be just really authentic you know, to who I am and, and kind of just my environment. And like, you know, I got tattoos on my fingers. I have tattoos all over me. I wear big gold jewelry. You know, if I could, if if I had some, I'd have gold door knockers and I'd have gold teeth in my mouth. You know what I mean? Like, just because like, I'm a product of my environment and I appreciate it and I love it. And I, and I don't want, that's who I am. So I want that to be reflected in what I wear. Well, you talked about your canvas as an artist and your canvas, is it your plate or is it your cooking utensils. So talk about how you use that to create your culinary point of view. I would say if I could choose a particular canvas, I would say a bowl and a black pot. I would prefer to eat out of a bowl <laughs> pretty much, right? I don't I don't know why, um, but maybe most most maybe mostly because the foods that I grew up with, you know, were stews and, you know, really like braised dishes, right? Things that I kind of need, I need a vessel to put that 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 food out there in, right? And then I say a black pot because again, that's just 
you know, you can make anything in a black pot, right? I could throw mm-hmm. this on top of the stove. I can throw it in the oven if I want to bake some bread, you know? So like, it's, it's a very versatile tool to use. You mean like a black skillet? I would do, you could do a black skillet or even like a, like a Dutch oven, right? Like okay. a cast iron Dutch oven. Um, so I think, I think those would be, if I had to, I had to pick a particular, you know, tool to be my canvas, I would say one of those. And I guess for my, my tool of choice would be a, a chef's knife or it would be a wooden spoon. Or what I have actually is what I call my, my grandma's spoon. So some spoons I actually took from my grandma's house. Um, really? and Does she know just, that? Yeah, she knows. She, okay. It's funny because I, I, I recently moved back home and um, I went to her house and I was like, you, do you know I got two of these spoons? Remember when you gave me two of these spoons? She was like, I did. I'm like, yes, Granny. So, so, but her, the, these are like just regular metal spoons, but they're really, they're really heavy. And it's just like one of those things that like, if I'm cooking, right. And I'm, I'm ready to taste something. I want to use that spoon. Um, okay. I could pick any other spoon that's there, but I don't know. That's like the spoon. Right. And it's also when, when I cook a lot of food, I like to use that utensil as the same utensil I actually, like if I make a bowl of food, that's the utensil I've cooked with that, but I'm also about to eat with that as well. I'm going to use that as my, my tool of choice to, to eat. You know, I'll give, the person with me that can get a fork or whatever, but I'm using that same spoon that I cook with as the actual. So it's kind of like, you know, a literal hand to mouth type thing. Right. And I don't know, these aren't things, you know, this is something I kind of thought about before, but you know, when you say it, you kind of realize like how special, I guess that kind of interaction really is. It's very intimate. It's kind of a very yeah. intimate type of cooking, right? Yeah, definitely. Very intimate. How, how did you come to be a culinary professional? I know you've been in all sorts of places in that, in, in that yeah. industry. Yeah, I've I pretty much done it all. You know, I kind of have a, I guess, a stereotypical story in the sense of, you know, I was always the kid in, in the pot. You know, I was always in the kitchen while somebody was cooking. I'm always in there trying to sneak a piece the meat out the pot or like you know there's a little fry shrimp i'm gonna go grab one you know um getting popped on the hand for trying to you know for trying to get the stuff while it's still cooking right um which i think a lot of a lot of people have those kind of experiences and it's it's again not something i thought about until i actually you know got into the profession i didn't start working in restaurants until i was in college because i had to pay my way through college i i know i got you know some government help. I got, you know, student loans and stuff like that, but I didn't come from a family that had a lot or that was given, you know, I didn't have like a college trust fund or something set aside. So I had to work, pay my bills. You know, I had actual bills, right. Where, whereas Mm -hmm. maybe kids had, you know, a parent who could, you know, who, who were blessed to be able to have parents who could do that for them, or maybe they got scholarships or whatever. Um, but I had to like, I had to pay rent. I had to keep my water on. I had to eat, and I had to still make sure my tuition was getting paid, which you know what wasn't covered. So I started working in restaurants as a cashier first and a waitress, and just moved up from there and and started working in just different types of restaurants. You know, family owned, locally owned stuff, corporate restaurants, fine dining, and then found myself just constantly working up that ladder. So I started, like I said, as a cashier and a waitress, ended up going up to, you know, assistant GM, kitchen manager, service manager, bar manager, front of house, you know, what we call front of house. So again, service, um, bartending, things like that. 
I found that stuff easy after a while. Like I was, I wasn't being challenged anymore. I was told by, by one of my bosses and it's something that I, I kind of carry with me and I try to teach new people coming into the field is like, you have to know how to sell the cheese. You gotta know how to talk to people. You gotta know how to, you know, yes, you want to upsell and get, you know, more money coming in because a higher check means you're probably going to get a higher tip, but you also just have to be a really good people person. You know, not to toot my own horn, but naturally, I, I naturally I am. I really am. I know how to talk to people. I know how to be attentive to what my my guests may need. And after I was like, okay, cool, I'm making good money, but I'm bored, right? And I was always the the person in the back, messing with the with the cooks and you know, getting them getting them pots. water. Yeah, you know, you know, definitely not, definitely not messing with none of their stuff, right? But just talking trash through the line. But getting them water and, and, and helping them out too, right? Hey, I want to know what you're doing back there, right? And eventually it's just like, okay, Ambus, you will keep asking us, come back here. So now we can show you. And that's where I found that challenge. Um, and once I got back there, I just didn't want to leave. So now, somehow, you know, 12, 13 years later, I am a chef and I do food writing and I, you know, do classes and none of, none of the things that I ever... Um, would have imagined because my degree is actually in theology. My degree has nothing to do with food service. I didn't go to culinary school. Everything I, I was taught was either through me just having the passion and, and, and the drive to want to learn and, and, and putting myself in positions, but also making sure that I was working beside people who wanted to see me win and who wanted to teach me, who really wanted to see me um, progress in the field. Food writing, I mean, that, that was a complete accident, I guess, you know, happy accident in a, in a way, divine intervention where, you know, I was talking trash on Twitter and I said, if somebody wants to pay me to talk about this stuff, then let's go. Uh, <laughs> then let's do it. Yeah. And I got plenty of them, you know, so um, it's still nice. really odd to call myself a, a writer, right? Because really I'm just, again, what an artist does, right? I'm putting the thoughts that are in my head and I'm putting them on paper and people like it. What is it that you really like to write about as far as food writing? Black food, obviously, right? Any Anything in the diaspora. I love to write about Southern culture. I love to write about the Low Country because that's where I'm from. I'm from North Charleston, South Carolina. So I love talking about our cuisine, our cuisine's influence on what people think is soul food and what people think is Southern food. I like finding those connections between you know, the food that I grew up eating and and its connection to other cultures, especially, you know, connection, obviously, to Africa. Um, but also, too, I like to be very, maybe up, very upfront about what's happening in the industry. Um, I think I have a unique perspective as a person who has literally worked in all of these positions you know, now I get to talk about it in a way that a lot of people who write about food don't really have that perspective. They maybe do it from like a dining perspective or maybe they went to journalism school or whatever, right? Which is fantastic. That's just not something I did. So I like to I like to make those points of, hey, what 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 you're saying is, is right, but also as somebody who has been in this position, let me tell you maybe why you're not all the way right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, my main thing, though, I would say is that I like to write particularly so that Black people can see themselves in the things that I write. That's what I keep in mind as I'm writing. Um, mm -hmm. I want my peers and my grandma and somebody's auntie 
to be able to read what I'm writing or the recipe that I'm making. And, and it's something that they understand. It's something that they feel connected to. It's something that they wouldn't have even thought of about, well, why is okra soup so special? Where did this come from, right? You'll never be able to go to Africa, but now you know that, hey, you're, the food that you've been making your entire life has a story. Hmm. So that, I think that's the main thing that I try to keep in mind when I do write. You talked a little bit about low country and that's where you're from and you have a perspective on low country cuisine. Obviously it's something I'm very passionate about. I didn't know how special our food was until I left home, mm. um, which I think so many, you know, you mm -hmm. have to leave home to, to kind of really, really grasp why, but so much of the cuisine from different parts of the low country, because I don't want it to, it, it gets kind of misconstrued often that low country means just Charleston, South Carolina, and it doesn't. We're talking about a really large part of the Southeast. We're talking about North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, right? So we're talking about food ways that really were extremely influenced by enslaved West Africans, by every possible thing that could have occurred to a black American, you know, throughout hundreds of years, right? Our food is the basis of that. Before we had the great migration, we was down here. I mean, obviously there are people all over the country, right? But like, we were so predominantly in, in the South that like our food, once we started leaving, our food is the basis for what people think American cuisine is or what people think Southern cuisine is. What and sets low country yeah. cuisine apart from cuisine, say, from like Mississippi or Georgia or Tennessee, the Southern cuisine there. I would, there is I would say, difference, right? I would think, I would say so. I think that obviously um, our connection, like I said, to, to our to West African culture is, is, is extremely heavily influenced. Um, I would say on par, if not even just as much or more than maybe Louisiana, right? Um, or Mississippi and the Delta. Um, we are hyper-focused on fresh ingredients. You, you go and you can go crab and you can go catch shrimp and 10 minutes later, you're, you're eating that, that what you just caught. Um, people still grow vegetables in their yards. We have fruit trees everywhere, blackberry bushes everywhere. This just grow, grows wild. So when we talk about Southern food in particular, it gets this bad rep of, oh, it's unhealthy and it's salty mm -hmm. and it's too sugary and it's all these things. And it's like, it's really not. We're fried. Like, yeah. And it's like, but we're the original farm to table. You, you, you can't get much more fresh than, than, than what it is here. Um, nature is abundant and it always has been abundant and it's always been good to us. So we've always been very careful to take care of it because it's always taking care of us. And I think that that's a really, you know, important part of our cuisine and also i would say to the influence of indigenous cultures here especially because there aren't really any indigenous people here anymore but we had that connection with them so long ago that a part of their culture survives through us being able to still kind of shrimp and grits shrimp and grits is not from us hmm. we wouldn't have had shrimp and grits if if the indigenous cultures didn't teach us how to make grits <laughs> you know what i mean right. how to mix the corn um, now, granted, we had maybe some things that were very similar, but when you see shrimp and grits, that come that comes from those those, those cultures merging. So I think that cornbread. cornbread, we wouldn't have cornbread, we wouldn't have yeah, we wouldn't have corn, we wouldn't have mush, right? Like so many of these dishes now, uh, Johnny cakes, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like ash cakes, things like that that we wouldn't have had 
without the influences of these cultures. And I think that it's something that you do see kind of across Southern foodways. But, you know, when we start talking about, we start moving a little bit further inland, obviously, you know, there's less seafood, right? So that's obviously a huge part of our culture. You know, we talk about okra, we talk about bene, we talk about ingredients that were specifically brought here by West Africans, or we talk about ingredients maybe that were already here in the Americas, but we kind of we kind of took it in and made it our own. So how do you feel low country cuisine has kind of been bastardized by other entities? Yeah, definitely. Uh, especially with me coming back home. I haven't lived in Charleston for 10 years. It has blown up over over the past decade into this kind of hot cuisine of the South, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, well, this is cool that you can go and charge shrimp and grits. You know, you can charge somebody $30 for a bowl of shrimp and grits. Really? But this is some, oh, absolutely. Um, but this is something that, you know, we as Black people grew up eating because it was cheap and it was accessible to us, right? But yet you don't see any Black chefs uh, in these kitchens making these meals, making the money um, mm. that a lot of these entities are, you know, are making from it. And I think that, you know, bastardization is a great word because there's there's never any, there's never any recognition to where these, the, these food waste came from. There's never any kind of like reconciliation. Maybe, oh, hey, yeah, well, you know, I did get this from a trip when I went to West Africa. Or, yeah, I did go to, you know, a couple miles down the street and talk to someone's grandma. And, I, and she gave, she made me this one. I want to go back and make it in my restaurant. Right. And I, hey, man, look, that's cool. But not even an acknowledgement of this is not yours. <laughs> you know, this Why isn't do you think yours. there's a lack of acknowledgement? Because it's easier to... It's easier to 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 just act like it didn't, like it like that wasn't the case. It's easier to just do it rather than be honest. And I think because so long, for so long, that's just kind of been the way of the world, right? Where what did they, what did they say? The victors, the victors are the ones that write history. So you know who's writing the history, right? When when all of our recipes are oral, then. You get this one dude that comes by and, oh, like I said, oh, look, telling me how to make this. But he's the one that gets to go and write it down. Now it becomes his. He can say whatever he wants to say about it. And it's it's his. And also, too, it's easier to put a particular type of person on the front of a magazine than somebody's grandmama. You know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's that's what that's what the media wants to see. The media doesn't want to see the truth that's kind of blatantly in their face and now they're now now obviously they are right now it's been this sort of a reckoning of well yeah i did get that from someplace right but now it's it's almost it's almost a little too late right the damage is already kind of i'm not gonna say the damage has been done but the damage has already started to be inflicted where whereas you could have used that opportunity from jump to to put people on to help uplift communities to help you know whatever and you know, a lot of it for me personally, I would say comes down to greed. In your food writings, have you, in your research, as you're writing about the different entities that are going on within the the African diaspora, have you discovered any new Black chefs who are being recognized for this exact cuisine or any Southern cuisine at that? 
Oh yeah, now there's definitely there's 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 plenty. Of course, you know everybody everybody should know BJ Dennis, right? And you know there's people oh, I can't even think of the young lady's name right now, but she does like Appalachian cuisine. Huh. You know, of course you have people like Eduardo Jordan or uh you know Mashama Bailey, right? But then you have kind of you know you also have people who maybe don't have a big name or maybe don't have like a brick and mortar building, right? So the kind of, you're just your neighborhood barbecue spot, right? You know, or or like Martha Luz, like, you know, someone I just recently wrote about who just passed, like who's who was known for her, her fried chicken and lima beans and rice, right? And, and really? macaroni and cheese. Where was uh, she? She, she was uh, right, here in, right here in Charleston um, okay. in, in the downtown area. Like I said, she just recently passed and her her restaurant had closed down uh, towards kind of towards the end of last year here um partly i think because of, of covid and whatnot but so so yes there are definitely some bigger names definitely people really getting that recognition now but i mean it, it says a lot when you know even those bigger name chefs didn't start getting that recognition so maybe the past five or six years right and but then there's been been other chefs who's been heralded as the as the the new south new southern cuisine Mm-hmm. um for for a decade or more um off of food that's not theirs you said there's starting to be some some type of acknowledgement but it's too late but at the same time there are these new school uh black chefs who are starting to get this recognition and yeah. you know james beard awards Mich- i don't think anybody's got the michelin star yet for anything like this or have they yeah. I- no not not for not for southern food i think we i think america just got their first black woman michelin star um it's a young lady in chicago yeah so like i don't think there's been anyone and, and i mean that says its own thing too right well why doesn't michelin think it's good enough to come to the south and she wasn't even cooking black cuisine, so-called yeah. black cuisine. She was cooking Asian, Asian. Uh, yeah. fusion. Maria Russell, who's yeah. no longer in Chicago, she moved to Hawaii. And so now, as of now, I don't think there are any um, black women chefs who are currently working who earn Michelin stars. So yeah. Um, yeah, something needs to be done about that, right? Yeah. I mean, this. I think, you know, there's kind of a divide right now where some some folk don't feel like we should be adhering to the to these kind of uh eurocentric very white organizations mm-hmm. and and what they think is prestige especially after you know so much of our own cultures and cuisines have been kind of taken from us and then there's some like me who say well no i absolutely agree but at the same time too why isn't our stuff good enough like i said why why don't we have a michelin star yet someplace in atlanta you know what I mean? Like in Atlanta, at least, or in DC for like for a black chef, even in DC, even if you don't in Miami, right? Or like you don't even have to be in Mississippi, right? Like, but why is there just no no one in the South? Nothing is our cuisine, period. And I think that even speaks more to even outside of just black cuisine, right? Like just southern cuisine, period, isn't good enough or something of that stature. So I'm a staunch believer in I I think we should absolutely have our own uh awards and recognition and and there are places that are trying to do that you know you got gumbo jubilee and a couple other um uh you have the the 31 black women um every year that uh dime diaspora does and you know so we have our own we do have our own system starting to get put in place Mm -hmm. but at the same time too like 
we've been excluded from these places so long and we know what comes with when you get this recognition. We know that if you can get a James Beard Award, we know if you can get a Michelin star, that that means you get investors, that means you get the press, that means you get the money that you need and the means that you need to continue to be able to do this and continue to put the culture on. So I think that we should be able to do both. I totally agree. And then there are also the Black Plate Awards from Restaurant Week, yeah. Restaurant Week group, Black Restaurant Week, which is based in Houston, Texas. So they're doing um, national recognition of Black restaurants, whether they're caterers, bartenders, restaurateurs, chefs, and so on, all the people in the food space, Black-owned businesses. And I thought that yeah. was phenomenal. They started that, they had yeah. their first ever one in 2020, and they're hoping to continue 100% behind that. So before we end, you know, I want to talk about some of your favorite dishes. We didn't talk about that. I know you love to cook, but you didn't talk about what you love to cook. So yeah, let's end on, a, on that note. <laughs> oh man, that's always, that's always the question that kind of like you would think that by now I would have good answers to. I like to keep things simple. If I'm cooking for myself, I'll get me a pack of noodles and, and jazz it up with the quickness. Or make, you know, a fresh salad, right? Just getting some local ingredients, some tomatoes off my porch, whatever. Um, going to the farmer's markets and being, or going to somebody's farm and being able to just kind of pick, you know, your own fresh strawberries, right? Nice. Obviously, a lot of things with rice and grits. Um, you would think as much as I eat, <laughs> I'd, I'd have a little bit more meat in my bones by now. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so again, going kind of back to what we talked about earlier, braises, stews. Um, of course, shrimp and grits, right? Any any sort of seafood, because especially being in Charleston, like I said, I can get, I'm getting, you can't get better than this. You can't, right? I can just get whatever type of fresh food I want. How do you prepare your shrimp and grits? I would say the, the traditional way, which historically is traditional. It is, we are the, we do the original quote unquote shrimp and grits. So Good stone ground grits. I try to get my grits now from a black owned company called uh, Southern Queen Grits. They're, they're actually based here out of South Carolina. Southern um, Queen Grits? Southern Queen Grits, yes. Okay. So I try to get good good stone ground grits from them. Grits you got to still wash, right? A lot of people aren't used to, they're just used to kind of instant grits. You just pour it, whisk it in with some water. You know, these mm -hmm. are grits you got to wash and make sure there's no stones and no sticks in it. And, you know, we make a, we make a, basically make a roux based gravy. I like mine's closer to the, the darker end, not quite a chocolate roux, more close to like a peanut butter color roux. We kind of lightly fry our, our shrimp, very, very, very kind of lightly season them. Cause you know, again, we, we're getting fresh shrimp that somebody just caught this morning. So they're nice and they're sweet and they're not huge, you know, they're good, nice size, small, usually smaller. I'll put a little onion in there. Um, I guess some people will kind of say it's more like, like smothered. If, if you want to say that, but yeah, simple, low salt, low pepper, and low hot sauce. That's all you need. That sounds delicious. <laughs> I'm so hungry. You've made me so hungry. I, one of these days I'm going to get your shrimp and grits, you know, I'm going to make yeah. my way out to Charleston, never been there, but I definitely want to come. Come but, down and have a good time. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Charleston is definitely on my list of cities to visit. I mean, it's a great eating town, so I can't believe I've yeah. never been there. Yeah. Hopefully with the world, you know, hopefully the world can open up and things can get a little safe and you can come on down. Absolutely. So thank yeah. you so much, Amethyst. It's been a pleasure chatting with you about your personal style and your writings and your point of view 
which is fantastic. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that does it for this episode. We're back next Friday with another outstanding, talented culinary personality you don't want to miss. Thank you so much for listening to the Feast and Fashion Podcast on the Eat, Drink, Dine Podcast Network. I'm your host, Adasha Townsend. Meet me back here next Friday.